You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and, as we say in my hometown, I am proper chuffed that we get to spend the next hour together in the world of the arts. I thought that this week we would visit with some of the nominees who the community chose for the Missourians' annual Progress in the Arts Award, which they handed out in a virtual ceremony last week. The nomination form was open throughout the month of September and the community was invited to put forward individuals in 10 categories, including the arts. This year, there were eight nominees for the Arts Award and the winner was chosen by Missourian editors, along with winners from the previous year, who met virtually this year to discuss the nominations and select the winners in each category. On today's show, we'll be visiting with four of them, including the winner. So, as we have a packed arts tour today with four people who have never been on the show before, let's head out. A couple of years ago, my husband came home from an evening with some pals at Broadway Brewery and was extraordinarily excited about the band he'd seen there. As a general rule, he's not a massively effusive person, but this big jazz band and the musicians really knocked his socks off. And a few months later, we were in Broadway Brewery on the last Monday of the month, and there was that same band that Tom had talked about. And I realised he had not been understating his excitement. The venue maybe wasn't quite as dark, smoky, and moody as Ronnie Scott's in London, but the music we were hearing was absolutely world-class. And this was the Columbia Jazz Orchestra. And so I was so delighted to hear that the winner of the Missourians 2020 Progress in the Arts Award is its director, Brandon Hall. And here he is. Congratulations, Brandon, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Thanks so much. I'm Really honored to be here uh, talking to you. That's that's really nice. Thanks. Well, let me start, Brandon, by reading a quote from the person who nominated you. I know you've heard this before, but <laughs> Brandon has built relationships with various people and groups across Colombia, including business owners, educators, and fans of jazz. We have worked with multiple educators at multiple schools by putting on performances and working with students. His love of music, education, and our community is the reason why we've been able to accomplish so much. Without him, the Columbia Jazz Orchestra wouldn't exist. He has worked so hard over the last six years, building strong relationships, enriching and expanding local culture, and bringing this great American art form to the forefront in our community. So I know none of us do what we do because we think we might win an award, but maybe you can (laughs) share a little about what drives you to shape and direct the Columbia Jazz Orchestra. I kind of can't not, <laughs> if that if that makes sense. Um, big bands are a, well, I mean, they're big, right? <laughs> <laughs> and with the more and more hustle that gets piled on us, all of us, the less and less time people have, especially, you know, 20 people have at the same time. It can't complicate things. And the thing is, there's also nothing like a live big band. 
recordings are great. There's nothing like a live big band. So, so I played in big bands you know, through through college and high school. I, as soon as I found out what one was in, I was in it. Uh, growing up, and, and and then of course school's over, and there's no big band anymore. And after a while, I just couldn't stand it anymore, and decided. Well, I mean, I just I knew some people, and I had nothing to lose by trying to throw it together. So I did, and it was pretty good. So I kept doing it, I'm just like kind of not a choice. <laughs> So how how did it come into being? What were those early days of the orchestra? The origin of the orchestra pretty simply was about half and half community players who you guys have seen in all kinds of local local groups all over town uh, for years. And the other half at the time were, were, were MU students. I, I guess there were, at that point, there were still a few bridges in that I wasn't in school anymore, but I still knew some folks that were still in school that knew these, these kids. And so we ended up getting, uh, talking to each other and putting it together. And, uh, that is how we operated for, I'm going to say the first three years of our existence ish. I love how fabulously eclectic the band is in terms of its its makeup. So like you say, you have students and you have semi-professional horn players alongside a bank president, a pharmacy supervisor, a student, a chef, city staff, educators, and all ages. How did you go about selecting the musicians that are in the band? I didn't. They selected. <laughs> seriously, I didn't. They selected to be in the band. I know this because when I sit down at a rehearsal and I look around, there they are. Um, I didn't select them. I happened to look around to find who wanted to do this in the first place. It got established. And then as time has gone on, um, everybody knows a guy, if that makes any sense. Right. And so I kind of leave it to my section leaders, the lead player in, in, in each section. So I, I serve that role in the trumpet line. Todd Yatsuk, uh, our MC, serves that role on the trombone line. Jim Schaefer, my assistant director, serves that role on the saxophone line. And the rhythm section is actually unique in that each, because no two players play the same instrument in the first place, it is very much a more collective, collectively governed uh, section. But I basically leave it to the sections to hire replacements when people need to move on. Selecting band members implies some sort of hierarchical implication that my judgment is any way superior to anyone else's, which is just simply objectively untrue when it comes to players that do not play the same instrument as me, uh, for one. And for two, I don't want that hierarchical anything because it gets in the way of communication and you can't play music if you can't communicate because you don't get to do it with words. You have to do it with it's, there's too many things to explain. <laughs> well, tell me, what are you passionate about as a musician and an artist? Musicians and artists and the people that we make those things for, because everyone is a musician and everyone is an artist, right? Just plain and simple. Human beings can sing regardless of, accuracy 12 tone system or whatever human beings can control the pitch of their voice and pitch volume all these various metrics of music music is the original language it's not the universal language it's the original language the first time a human being made the same sound consistently at another human being 
in intent to communicate communicate something. That was the first song ever written, right? And it got more and less specific from there simultaneously. I feel. I agree. The arts are are so vital to our ability to find empathy and to tell and preserve our yes. stories about what it is to be human, to share our imagination. And it feels like over the past few years, just globally, we're somehow starting to lose that ability to have empathy and to understand each other. Talk to me about how jazz music, maybe in particular, speaks to these uncertain times and how it can bring us together, if there's even an answer to that. In my opinion, the answer to that is take art seriously again. As long as I've lived, I've always, um, generally, I feel people think of art first as entertainment, right? It's called the entertainment industry all the time. And there is a real problem, I think, culturally with what we believe is real is very biased towards what is physical as opposed to what is conceptual, if that makes sense. There's just like these have always been like these kind of undertones of uh, anti-intellectualism and they're like just, you know, people don't want you to overthink art, like don't look too much into it. Oh, it's, you know, you, you hear those kinds of things all the time. And then on top of that, in order to make money and like, honestly, on the other side of it, employ a lot of us, You've got a business model um, in a lot of artistic industries, which, again, we need to pay our bills. But you have this model where the concept is to make one thing and then distribute it to as many people as possible, which means you're reducing. But unlike in cooking, reducing removes complexity in music. Whereas in cooking, reducing concentrates simply by removing the water, which we don't, you know, discern the flavor of, or we don't count as a flavor or whatever. So um, Broadway Brewery was until March of this year, your regular last Monday of the month gig. But obviously, the pandemic put paid to that, as it has done to every other live arts event. So how are you keeping the spirit of a big band alive during these times? One of the things we're doing right now with the band, actually, since, you know, you can't put 20 people in a room even for a rehearsal, let alone a performance, um, we've been trying to figure out how to get on this remote recording business. And I just, like, kind of turned over the reins to uh, our piano player, Pete Skolka. He runs a studio, and so he's been kind of taking the reins on that, and we've been... Let's see. How do I want to put this? (laughs) We've been learning as we go. And there's like very seriously, it's been a no pressure environment. Like when it came up with the idea and I was like, okay, this is going to take forever. Let's just resign ourselves for it and learn how to do it. And let's, let's do it right. And let's not, let's on top of that, let's not make anybody's life any harder than it's got to be right now, (laughs) you know? I am amazed when I see online some of these, you know, pretty significant orchestras who are all in remote places and there is some technical wizard behind the scenes that I is know. editing it all together. Yeah, man. Like, th- yeah, yeah, yeah. So th- th- that's kind of like what we're inspired by, right? Is is we've seen those floating online. And so we're trying to do that. And we got Pete and Pete. Pete's very, you know, Pete knows what he's doing, right? All of the rest of us 
are at varying degrees, right? Ranging from Pete and then Rob Bullion too, uh, uh, of Linderbox Sound here locally is, and he does our live sound whenever we perform. So you know, you got guys like that on the one end. The other end, you got me. Um, <laughs> as long as you have access to those people, it, it's fine. Not everybody has to be good at everything. <laughs> exactly. For sure. For sure. The point of live music is to bring people together, right? In one way or another, it, uh, in no specified quantity of people, but the point of live music is to bring people together. And so when bringing people together means you might also kill them, we're going to find something else. It's not to say that art is unimportant in the face of that. It's simply that that venue and that medium for art needs to temporarily be shelved and we need to find some other way to say what we have to say. Well, on that note, Brandon Hall, let me say that the Columbia Jazz Orchestra, under your guidance and dedication, is really an inspirational force of music and collaboration. And thank you so much for making time to chat today. And congratulations on winning the Progress in the Arts Award. You are one of the many people who make Columbia such a fabulous place to live. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, thanks. <laughs> My next guest on today's show needs no detailed introduction, especially to KOPN listeners. She is not only one of the best known and most loved performers in mid-Missouri, but is also an event organizer, a camp director, an educator, a mentor, a songwriter, and an activist. I don't quite know how I haven't had her on the show before, but I am so delighted to welcome the inimitable Violet Vonderhaar to Speaking of the Arts. Good morning, Violet. Wow, such an introduction. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> it's all true. <laughs> <laughs> you mean so much to so many people, especially young female musicians for whom you are an icon of female musical empowerment. And I'm wondering when you think back to those early musical days, singing in your school's Christmas show and appearing with the legendary Lee Ruth at Columbia's Earth Day when you were just nine years old, who were your female role models at that time? Oh, man, at that age... Um... I had just gotten into Jewel. I think Jewel was kind of that first songwriter that awoke me to that possibility of being able to write my own music and express myself. Locally, you know, I was learning, like you said, from Lee Ruth, from the local songwriters. Lee Ruth, Michael Cochran was a, another influential musician in my life. But yeah, females was uh, Jewel, the Dixie Chicks, of course. And then once I discovered Ani DeFranco, that's when things really started changing. <laughs> So in that moment when you stood on your school stage alone with a microphone, you say that was the moment that you knew you wanted a life of music and performance. Do you remember what it was about that moment that really captured your heart? It just felt like home. It felt like that was where I was supposed to be. <laughs> that I, It was a, a Christmas program. I went to school at Prairie Home High School and Prairie Home Elementary as well. And um it was Blue Christmas, I think was the song that we sang. I had some backup singers for it too, you know, in fourth grade. And it just, I don't know, it just, it felt like home. It was just the right place for me to be. It, it does seem like you belong definitely on the stage. And, you know, despite all the extraordinary women that have always played a role in almost all genres of music, the business of music whether it's classical through pop, remains so male-dominated. So in navigating that world as a woman, where have you met the most challenges? That's a great question. I, you know, I've always approached my music and my art not, I know it sounds counterintuitive or uh, 
I don't know. I've I've just approached it as an artist, as a musician. I've even though my a big part of my my goal as a musician is to raise up and lift up women's voices. Um, I've just always tried to approach it as a musician at first, and then you know, oh yeah, I'm also a woman that that plays music, and so I think with that approach, the challenges that have come my way. I haven't always looked at them as like, oh, this is a challenge I'm having because I'm a woman. It's just a challenge because the music industry is such a challenging industry to be in. Well, I want to talk about the Campus Music Camp, which you and your wife, Phil Sean, founded and have now run for, is it nine years? Yeah, this would have been our ninth year. How did that all get started? It started off as Phil Sean's idea. It was her brainchild. She spent a couple summers in New York at the Willie Mae Rock Camp for Girls. And she really wanted to bring that program back to Columbia. And at the time, she had a, a young student who was a boy, and he had just recently seen, they made a documentary for the Girls Rock Camp years ago, and he had just watched that documentary, and he, he got a poster, and he hung it on his wall, and he, was, he just really loved the concept and that idea of going to a rock camp. And so that's when she decided, she said, this needs to be a co-ed camp. She really, you know, she wanted her, the young boys that she was teaching to be able to participate in it, in it as well. And then I came into Compass before we were romantically involved. I was involved with Compass as well, playing showcases. That was early, early on, probably 2009, 2010. And so I'd kind of known about the the mission of Compass and was really supportive of it and loved being involved as much as I could. And um, so we started Compass Music Camp. That was, I believe it was 2012 is the year. I love that the camp isn't just about music lessons and playing together. It includes how to market your band and book gigs, right. how to have stage presence, the goals of live sound and recording, as well as songwriting, music history and theory and art. Where do you see the students have the most aha moments? Really, when they get in that room together and start making music, you know, because a lot of these students, they're working individually with their with their private lesson teachers. And a lot of them don't have that opportunity to just get to make, you know, form a band. It's it's hard to get that that initial jump start, you know. And so, you know, we've seen how Compass has really um, started to shape and mold our, our younger music scene. You know, looking at the sweaters, it's recently released a new album. They... They got their start playing at Compass Music Camp. Doing what they're doing right now is just so exciting and so fulfilling. It just makes our hearts so happy to see all these these campers that are still continuing playing in a band, playing in bands and making music. It's just it's really great. As you've been going for almost a decade, I mean, you have students who were little kids when they came to you that are now approaching 20 and are right. fully adult and, and in bands. <laughs> the sweaters I have heard live at actually KOPN on Mike Hagen's show, and they are amazing. They're like, what, 12, 13? I think the youngest Henry is probably about 13 or 14 just phenomenal. Yeah. I wonder whether those different lessons that you give them about marketing your band and booking gigs, whether this has grown out of your experience, yours and Phil Sean's experience of, of tackling the music industry and, and where, where you have had challenges or where challenges exist. Is that how you've structured the program? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we, we've been completely independent and we chose to, to 
you know, do it that way. And there's a lot of work that comes with being an independent musician. You know, you have to do everything. And so really developing all those skills, learning how to to try to book a show, even things like that. Um, well, it's not little, <laughs> but from that screen printing our own t-shirts, you know, I, I did, there was probably a six month period where I was trying to figure out how to make screens so I could screen print my own t-shirts so that we could, you know, maximize our profits and, you know, making our own CDs, doing as DIY as possible. So as well as teaching at campus each summer, you've also been teaching year round at Winter Street Montessori School for several years, teaching preschoolers to sixth graders about music and voice. And one of your nominators for the Progress in the Arts Award commented on how quickly you moved all your instruction online and how awesome you were working with the kids in this new medium. Mm -hmm. The person said, we will forever remember how hard she worked to keep us all singing and in touch during those weeks we were at home trying to make sense of this extraordinary situation we are navigating so as a teacher how has this year been for you <laughs> it's uh it's been a little bit of a challenge but it's really it's um it's awakened me to the power and um to the power of music and the power of being able to to teach music and to share music music has a way of helping us process. And so with, my, especially with my private lessons, you know, we've, I've shifted a lot of my lessons from instrumental to songwriting. And so we've been doing a lot of songwriting, just, you know, processing what's been going on this year. And it's, I, I really believe it's helped not only my students, but it's helped me as well. It's helped both of us to really, to get through this year. Right. I mean, it has been an incredibly troubled year for the arts from there being no public performances across music and theatre stages to the calls for a radical shake up across all the arts to ensure that black and brown voices are heard, seen, employed mm -hmm. and respected and recognised. And at some level, the realisation that so very many of us turn to the arts in moments of crisis, whether we've been making sourdough bread or learning to crochet or collage or play guitar, the arts have been so crucial to so many of us. And you have always believed in the power of music to change people and open minds. How do you feel now as a musician, as we stand on the precipice of a new era, however that shapes up? I feel, I feel very excited, honestly. I, I feel like they're you know, we're, we're starting from ground zero, not just in the music industry, but in so many industries, you know, seeing, seeing these systems crumble right before our eyes. I, I, you know, I try to remember within death and within destruction with things ending, there's so much possibility for building again and building it back, <laughs> build back better, <laughs> but, you know, really just building back these systems so that they work for everybody. You know, being in the music industry as a all female band, we have seen and we have experienced where there's these holes where the people who are not straight cis white male, where it's it's a struggle to get into certain aspects into certain venues. And, uh, and so I think that this is a really big opportunity for us to just make it better and more accessible for everybody to share their voice and to share their music so that we can all, you know, we can all heal together, because I think that's, that's really what we're going to need. And that's where I see, again, the power of music. There's, there's just, there's a lot of potential there. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of power. Well, one of the things that you also do amongst all your teaching and everything else is you also run the annual and started the annual Jane Doe Review, which I think you did as a virtual event this year back in June. Is that right? We did. Yes. 
So for people who don't know, just tell us quickly what it is and how it got started, because that really speaks to inclusion of voices that often get marginalized, i.e. women. Right. We founded, Phil, Sean and I, we founded the Jane Doe Review in 2017, and it was partially inspired by the Women's March and that energy that was felt around the world that day of just you know, again, extreme possibility of all these people awakening to their power, to their feminine power and seeing and know at this point we had, you know, we knew a lot of people from different, different scenes in the Columbia music scene. And we just, we thought, how, how cool would it be to bring them all together and make music? So it's a, it's an all female rock band and we have, oh my gosh, I think the most members we've had is like oh, 55 band members. Oh my it's just insane. Like when we when we actually think about what we did, it's like how did that even happen? And it happened, you know, 3 years in a row as far as live shows go. So we have a we have a string section and a horn section and then rotating keyboard players and bass players and guitar players, two drummers and then rotating soloists as well. And it's not only that, but it's a you know, it's a benefit band, so we've raised money for Planned Parenthood for the National Organization for Women, Midwest Music Foundation in Kansas City, Veronica's Voice. There's a couple other, uh, there's been quite a few. I can't remember all of them, but we've raised... Midmost Stop Human Trafficking, I think. This is CL, isn't it? Yes, yes. Thank you. And so it's been a benefit show. And I think that that aspect of it is also what has made the project so inspiring. You know, we are all in it not only just to make music, but also for a bigger cause, a cause that's bigger than ourselves to help others. And then within that, we're also helping each other to find their voices, to empower each other. And then on top of that, we're covering women's music through the decades. So we're also honoring the women that have come before us and that have, you know, paved this path for us where we are now. And so there's, there's just, you know, there's so many levels to it that I think that have made it so powerful and and inspiring and life-changing for so many of the women involved. A lot of women have talked to me, you know, one-on-one and have told me how, how much Jane Doe Review has really changed their lives. And so it's very special. It is a very powerful evening. Well, Violet Vonderhaar, thank you so much for taking time to chat and for all you do to support and encourage young musicians and women. You are a very worthy nominee of the Progress in the Arts Award. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I grew up in a household where the prescribed wisdom was that both my parents were musically tone deaf, and therefore, I figured I was too. But is tone deaf even a thing? Well, my next guest has made a career of teaching people how to sing. Nolly Moore is the Assistant Professor of Music at Columbia College and also Director of the College's Music Programme. He directs the College's Chamber Choir, the Jane Froman Singers, and is advisor to the College's A Cappella Society and its Drama Club. Plus, Nolly has taught music within Columbia Public Schools, has been Music Director at Missouri United Methodist Church and Broadway Christian Church, and has at some point had his name on the credits of almost every theatrical group in Colombia. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Nolly Moore. Thank you. I'm exhausted from that introduction. (laughs) You must be. You do so much. So first question, is tone deaf actually a thing or can you pretty much teach anybody to hold a tune? There are certainly medical reasons that some people have difficulty matching pitch. I'll start with that. And so what we understand about, uh, you know, that sort of colloquial phrase of being tone deaf is a very real thing for some people. 
what research has told us and what I find absolutely fascinating about the process of teaching singing is not unlike most things that we learn or that we know or have learned, um, it really matters what happens when you're a young child. And learning to match pitch and being sung to and experimenting with the voice and sound and those kinds of young early childhood experiences are really, really vital in being able to um, being able to match what we call match pitch or to sing. Um, and that's, you know, that's not at all surprising. I tell a story occasionally. I had a student here at Columbia College several years ago who's gone on to be a filmmaker who grew up as a hearing child in a home in which both parents did not hear. And so those very early singing experiences were not a part of his, like being sung to and singing with a parent as, a, as an infant, as a toddler, as a young child didn't happen in his home. He struggled incredibly with matching pitch, but it, he had a goal of wanting to be able to at least match pitch. And we worked, and thank goodness I had experience teaching kindergarten music with Columbia Public Schools. I started with him as a 20-year-old college student as if I were teaching a child. And you know, he probably will never sing on stage, but by the time he left, he was able to match pitch. And you know, it's just the brain connections. I mean, we know from, from the studies that when those connections form as a young child, it's really crucial. So very similar to learning a language, the plasticity of the brain is is so much better when we're young. Absolutely. So despite that belief that I couldn't sing for most of my life, in my 30s, I did decide to take singing lessons. And I took a couple of voice exams and did really well. And I thought, wow, who knew I can actually sing? And then I made the mistake of thinking I could tackle karaoke. And I went back to thinking I couldn't sing. So I read in an article that you described yourself as the worst karaoke singer ever. <laughs> what is the disconnect between singing and karaoke singing? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, um, I think, you know, first of all, I mean, you have to know a little bit about my personal story. Um, I grew up in a family of non-musicians. That, that doesn't mean that there wasn't singing per se or that there wasn't music playing constantly. The joke I always make is if in my home as a child, if it wasn't Hank Williams Jr., it wasn't music. <laughs> Just to get, sort of give you a picture. Music was a part of everything, but I had no sort of um, musical training. And I'm not saying that you have to have musical training to be a, a good karaoke singer, but I got at music sort of later in life and got at singing sort of later in life. And from the purely academic side of learning how to be a musician. And so, unfortunately, what makes me a terrible karaoke singer is that I need to see the music. I'm just as bad at singing, like if I were at church and I were singing with the contemporary ensemble and we were just reading the lyrics, I'm just as bad at that. (laughs) (laughs) So it's just me then, is what we're saying. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, you work predominantly with young people who are either seeking academic knowledge of voice and music, or maybe they're pursuing singing as an after-hours passion with a choir. How much is your job about teaching the mechanics of singing versus, I guess, the artistry of finding one's voice? That's an excellent question. I, I often say to my students, 
particularly here on the collegiate level, but I, I think it applies to all students who are working at singing. The actual fundamentals of making sound, the actual fundamentals of, of learning a singing technique, the singing technique that we teach for musical theater or the bel canto singing that we teach for classical music, it's really pretty simple. There are, you know, a couple of handfuls of really fundamental knowledge that one needs to know to understand how, the technique of singing. The lion's share of the work of becoming a musician is all of the other. Learning to access one's own humanity, one's own emotional content, and, and learning how to communicate that with a listener. The historical aspects, of, particularly in classical music, but not fundamentally just classical music, the historical aspects of of the time and the place of, of the art and understanding the perspective of the composer and the voice um, that you are recreating. That's to me where the real work of, of singing um, to be a musician lies. The actual fundamentals are significant. Uh, you know, I certainly don't want to underplay that, but the real work and frankly, the, the exciting work is, is helping someone access their humanity. You know, I often say that the arts for me are fundamentally and have been fundamentally throughout history. One of the ways that we express and document our experience. And so if we're in the business of retelling those someone else's stories, if we're in the business of reenacting someone else's narrative, we have to do the work of finding their perspective and finding their humanity and, and understanding the time and the place in which they lived and how they moved, and then finding ways for us to connect with that in this modern world. How do we connect authentically in recreating and telling someone else's story? Outside of musicians who write their own material, we are storytellers. So this is pertinent to your own experience too. You aren't only a vocal coach, you're also a professional tenor. I saw you in Ragtime last year at the Rheinsberger Theatre, which was just a magnificent production, so full of emotion and storytelling. Mm. And you've sung Handel's Messiah in Dublin and London and toured with choirs around the world. So as a performer, what have been some of your seminal aha moments that really moved you forward? Oh my goodness, that's, uh, you know, what a great question. Do we have an hour? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. Um, you, you know, it's interesting. There are so many of those pivotal moments um, as a performer, as a musician, as a student, as a, a student of life, not just student of music, that sort of go unnoticed until I think you have a little bit of perspective to sort of look back and think, oh, wow, I can clearly see that that was a moment in which I woke up to an idea or something sort of clicked. I have a story that I sometimes tell. Um, I, I will never forget when I was in my early 40s, I had this sort of aha moment where I really believed and understood that I, I actually know how to teach people how to sing. <laughs> and then the second thought was, I need to write a letter to all of these students that let me practice on them up until this point <laughs> and, and apologize or thank them or some combination of the two. But my gosh, um, all of my most pivotal moments are emotional moments. I think when we think about 
the place of music in our in our lives. While um, studying music academically obviously is a passion of mine and is something I've spent my lifetime doing, I think what I'm really chasing and have been chasing my entire life is reliving those pivotal emotional moments that I experienced, but also knowing that I could be the person responsible for helping others find those same experiences. You know, I'll never forget my very first district choir experience when I, when I was in high school. And, uh, you know, I discovered years and years later when my mother gave me a box full of programs. And I never knew this. I never knew this. It's one of my favorite stories to tell. Um, she gives me the program and I see that in ninth grade, I was in the Southeast Missouri District Honors Choir. And the director was Marty Hook, who was the choir director at Columbia Hickman High School for years and years and years. I had was friends with him. I was colleagues with him. I never remembered that he was the director of that choir. But I remember that experience being really pivotal for me, that that director, while I didn't remember him specifically, helped shape my desire to be a part of that world and, and a part of those kinds of experiences. What are you passionate about as a teacher and arts advocate? Um, you know, like I said, I, I think that changes as we age and and with time. But, you know, one of the things that I think is very important and has certainly been important to me in the last several years is that that I take very seriously my opportunity to hold a platform. And that one of the things, one of my responsibilities, I think, in choosing what my students do, in in choosing what I produce, in what I share publicly or produce publicly for audiences, that it be works that um, that, that have something to say. And perhaps I've just gotten more brave as I've gotten older. That you know, I was sort of afraid of those sorts of things as as a young director, as a young conductor. But I think it's so important that those kinds of works be done for the same reason that it's important that those kinds of narratives are told in television, in film. It is so important that everyone be able to look onto a stage, be able to look, be able to hear in choral works, be able to experience in theater and music themselves. But that is one of the issues that has come up this year, that we teach Mozart, but not Chevalier de Saint-Georges, Debussy, but not Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, Gershwin, but not William Grant Still. A lot of black and brown voices are not being heard and seen on stages. Is that something that you are talking about with other music educators to change the canon of what is taught in school? Absolutely. Am I saying to you that we are there? Absolutely not. But it has to be a part of the work. And where I think it has to begin is in the educational experience. We teach what we know. And then textbooks are written from the perspective of what we know. And I think that um, one of the things that we're very deliberate about, and I'm very proud of serving on the Odyssey Chamber Music, the board of the Odyssey Chamber Music Series, and we're working very intently, deliberately in this topic. I think that it really begins with changing what we, what students learn by what they do. So I have to, I have to program this way. 
if I want my students who are studying to be conductors, who are studying to be singers, to lift up that music for their audiences in the future. What I have to also do right now is study because I wasn't taught that canon of literature. It wasn't a part of my textbook experience. It wasn't a part of my vocal rep or my choral repertory classes. Those experiences were taught from the, the white male experience. And so we have to be deliberate about what we lift up. I have a very simple phrase that I say to my music ed students. We show what we value by what we do. And I, what I mean by that is in performing, by what we program. We teach what we value by what we program. So we have to program differently. We just have to. Well, as well as teaching academically, you are also instrumental as a vocal coach to many of our local performing arts organizations where the end goal is quite different to a college or school setting. And I'm always in awe of community members who just throw themselves into the singing, acting and sometimes dancing world, happily accepting that they are not seeking perfection. And there's such personal vulnerability and a love of the art that goes into that. And, and even when it's off key, you just think, God, look at them doing it. They're just out there doing it. And it's so beautiful. How does teaching in that scenario change what you want to impart as a teacher? The reality is it shouldn't. I mean, and that's something I've learned over the span of my career. You know, as a young teacher, I think as a young musician, certainly in the world in which we exist, I think that we are the prevailing sentiment, frankly, is that we should be seeking perfection in every aspect of what we do. And, and I think that that can get, become a very crippling part of the learning as a musician. Because what we do know is that this, this thing that we do, singing, acting, performing at any level, is something that gets better and better and better with time and with experience. And to expect that sort of perfection from the very beginning, it's just unrealistic. And so it creates an environment in which I think people are unwilling to risk or afraid to risk. You know, one of my favorite stories to tell, as I actually um, involves one of your best friends, <laughs> Monica Palmer. Um, I was music directing, and this, this was several years ago. I think it was right after Monica moved to town. And she'll chuckle because she tells this story all the time. <laughs> but I was music directing for a CEC show called Clue. Anyway, I was coaching the singers and at some point um, something went awry and it was not going well. And apparently, according to Monica, my only note was, ladies, please. <laughs> <laughs> and she still tells that story. What I will say to you is that as I have matured as a human, my understanding of the place of the arts in our experience as humans has changed. I believe and enjoy and want everyone to experience that pride that we feel when we know we've absolutely done everything we can to make it the best that it is. But my students are eternally shocked, particularly my recent students. My early students didn't really see this in me because it's something that I found as I've aged. Um, they're eternally surprised when I am absolutely happy with what the product is. And that's because the process becomes what is most significant. We are working toward perfection. Whether or not we ever achieve it isn't the point. But if we know that we've given it everything that we have, 
then we enjoy the moment of interacting with that art and sharing that with with the people who who can't and aren't willing to interact with art on the level that we do as performers. Well, as somebody who struggles with perfection all the time and gets stymied by it frequently, I think that is a beautiful place for us to end that we should not be seeking perfection. We should just be taking part. Nolly Moore, thank you so much for taking time to chat. It has been a delight. Thank you. I am always so impressed and, to be honest, a tad jealous at people who have not only mastered a challenging profession, but who also happen to be so good at an art genre like singing opera, painting portraits, playing jazz trumpet, decorating cakes, that people also want to pay them for their hobby. And such is the case with my next guest. Carly Love has a Master's in Occupational Therapy, is a certified yoga kids teacher, has worked at the Thompson Centre for Autism here in Columbia, plus she ran her own confectionery business. These days, she is the Operations Director for Ragtag Film Society, where I'm imagining she makes sure everyone is not sitting for overly long periods and regularly brings in cupcakes to share. Carly Love, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was quite the intro. <laughs> Is there any of that true? Workplace, occupational therapy and iced treats? Or are you in a new professional zone now and not getting involved with everything that went before? Yeah, now I still work as an occupational therapist part-time in a pediatric setting and also in an inpatient setting at one of our local hospitals. But I don't do a lot of confectioning anymore. I once in a while, I will bring in some lemon bars. If this was not a pandemic, those would make an appearance once in a while in our office. But <laughs> I have uh, I have bid adieu to most of my baking for a variety of reasons. I guess it's a skill that doesn't go away like riding a bicycle. You can always go back to it when you need to. Yes. So I'm going to start by reading what one of your nominators said about you. In the past two years, Carly has prioritized both accessibility and safety of our guests, volunteers and staff throughout the festival footprint, as well as at the year-round Ragtag Cinema. Working closely with communities with disabilities, she has ensured those individuals with physical, visual and hearing impairment are welcomed into our spaces and can enjoy the movie-going experience to its fullest. Additionally, in her newest role as organization-wide operations director, Carly has been pivotal in our our ability to safely and smoothly implement community events in accordance to city and county public health guidelines. So as operations director for Ragtag Film Society, which means Ragtag Cinema and all things true false, it sounds like your job kind of means director of everything else. <laughs> Where does your job start and end? That's a great question. Um, well, my job started with the fest and it. I don't know if it has a really clear ending um, as we have worked to bridge our organization. You know, we've always fallen under Ragtag Film Society, but we've done two separate projects for so long. And one of our goals right now is to really unite them a little bit more to bring together the cinema and the fest to be able to serve the community as a whole year round, not just in our isolated silos. And so you know, we've been, t one of the things that we've been talking through is how do we make sure that everyone at the fest knows that we also have an art cinema in town? And how does everybody at the cinema know that we also have this great fest in town and engaging both of those audiences? But yeah, like you said, right now, 
feel like most of September and October have really been navigating how can we make cinema safe for our community because the collective arts experience is really something we take for granted. It's one thing to watch a movie on your couch. It's another to watch a movie with a handful of other strangers who also laugh or shudder at the same time. It it really emphasizes those emotions and deepens them. And so lately, one of the biggest things has been for part of my job has been how do we make outdoor cinema and indoor cinema safe and sustainable for our community as well as our staff. Right. How do you reimagine a giant festival in the time of a pandemic? You know, right now, we are planning for as if everything was the same right now when it came to these are the guidelines that were being provided by our local health department. So right now, we're functioning under the same guidelines of being socially distant, wearing a mask, washing your hands. And so it's really how do we creatively implement that into our spaces, but also how do we engage our attendees, our pass holders, our patrons, our communities to abide by those things and be a part of the greater community and the longevity of it? Because we know that by taking those precautions, we can continue with what we're doing. But if we don't take those precautions, then going to a movie for sure is still a very high risk thing. I I don't know anyone that would go into a full theater right now, myself included. And so, um, yeah, I think we've just really had to adapt and say, okay, if these are our parameters, what can we do? And then how can we keep our own style to it, right? Like going to, we were at Logboat and we were in their yard putting up a big movie screen. And we were like, well, we can still have merch because people can buy that. And... I mean, people still want to drink a beer while they're watching a movie, so Logboat can do that. So it was really more a, how can we not do this? And for people who maybe missed the show the other week, the 2021 True False Film Fest will be an outdoor event at Stevens Lake Park with four different screens and mostly nighttime viewing and then lots of music and installation art during the day. And of course, you don't know at this point in we're now in November what the situation is going to be like in May. So trying to organize the operations for an outdoor event six months out when you don't know what the world's going to be like must be extra challenging? Uh, It's been a pretty steep learning curve. (laughs) Um, But thankfully, I really enjoy math. Uh, So yeah, I've been doing lots of math when it comes to the amount of square footage we have and how many square feet per person do we need to have in order to provide a socially distant space. And what does that look like from, you know, how do we transform that from a piece of paper that says, Here's how many people you can fit in that space and still be socially distant. How do we transfer that to in person? How do I get someone to make sure they only stay in that one area or that they have a space that they feel comfortable and safe in that no one else is going to, if you will, like walk through the middle of their space. So those are ways that, you know, we're in the process of working with artists who are going to be building out these venues. And that's one of the things that we get to talk to them about is, hey, Let's use our creativity to figure out how we make lots of small safe spaces for each one of our audience members. Right. And another 
important component of what you have been doing for True False is sorting out accessibility issues, whether that's booking ASL interpretations, making sure venues are accessible, that there's wheelchair seating space, people have access to listening devices or closed captioning. And all of that, then you have to transfer to an outdoor park setting. What do you think are going to be the challenges when it comes to accessibility for next year's festival? We're definitely still navigating what those challenges are. One of the things I keep in the back of my mind and I bring up often with uh, as we're envisioning and planning for the fest is how do we include all populations and are the ways that we are providing transportation or admission or seating arrangements can anybody access those? And if not, we need to change what we're doing because I will make every and any accommodation um, within reasonable limit that in order for somebody to be a part of our process or in a part of our fest, how can we build our fest so that someone doesn't have to always ask for an accommodation, that they can just come and feel included without feeling like they have to make a special request to get a certain seat so that their wheelchair is in a safe level space. How do we change that? And so it's, it's a process that we're kind of going through now and is always at the forefront of my mind as we're evaluating our spaces. I joke sometimes that I'm a runner and I only run in spaces where I know I don't have to go up and down a curb because if I was a wheelchair user, I wouldn't be able to run there. Mm-hmm. So I keep those things in mind as we're walking through everything and One of my most favorite things last year, actually, is we borrowed a few ramps from the Services for Independent Living Agency, and they we had them out in the middle of Ninth Street to kind of hop the curb into Missouri Theater, so anyone could be a part of our Jubilee event and not worry about having to be able to get up and down a curb. And as we were setting up, one of the booze guys had a dolly with a keg on it and rolled it down the ramp. And I'm sure he thought I was crazy because I looked at him and I said, look at that universal design. And I started cheering and dancing because (laughs) somebody that wasn't a wheelchair user, right? Someone who didn't need an accommodation still benefited from this universal accessible design. And so my hope is that we continue to provide that universal accessible design in everything, even at the park when we are there. Have you had any aha moments in your time as operations director at Ragtag when you thought, wow, this is why I do what I do? Oh, goodness, yes. Um, (laughs) So we showed the film Crip Camp this past year. And one of the components of Crip Camp is that it was available with audio description and closed captioning and open captioning. So uh, closed captioning is where you would see it only on a single device. And open caption is where you would see captions on the screen. That's what most people would use at home too. So we showed Crip Camp with open captions on the screen. The whole audience saw the open captions. And we had audio description. So for anyone with a visual impairment, audio description is fantastic because it visually describes whatever you're watching. So in one ear, you hear the dialogue that's happening and all the sound clips and everything and the ambient noise. But in your other ear, when there's a break in dialogue, you're being vividly described what is on the screen. And so there was a moment during Crip Camp that I put on a pair of headphones so I could listen 
with the audio description and there was open captions on the screen and there were, we had to pull a bunch of chairs so that all of the wheelchair users that were at the theater had enough seats. And I sat in the back of the theater at the Globe and I just cried for a while as I was watching and listening to this because it just felt like this culmination of all of my favorite things, right? Like this accessibility and all the parts of my my academic career and professional career as an occupational therapist, but then getting to apply that outside of any kind of clinical setting and to apply it to a space that increased the accessibility and experience of every person that historically has not been able to enjoy film as much. And so that was just a really powerful moment to be able to be a part of that in 20, at the 2020 Fest. As the operations director, what is on your wish list of things you'd like to do or change? <laughs> I'm sure it's long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, one of the things that I that's for sure on my list is digital ticketing. I did not used to be pro-digital ticketing, but we've found a system that I think we are going to like a lot. And so I'm excited for us to be able to roll out with digital ticketing this year for the fest. And that's also an exciting part because I know that not everyone feels comfortable with, if you will, like a hard ticket that gets ripped and handed back to you right now because of the amount of germs. And so I'm excited that we can use digital ticketing to uh, allow people to feel more comfortable about that as well. So that's for sure one of the things on my list. Uh, I guess the other thing on my list right now, very tangible, is a couple of generators in order for us to be able to take our what we call ragtag road shows, so our outdoor movies, you know, we have we have all the pieces to do outdoor movies, except generators. We're still uh, we still have to rent those and get our hands on those every time we want to do an outdoor screening. And so that's on my list of uh, that's on my wish list this year is to get a couple generators to make us a fully independent outdoor road show. Well, Carly Love, Operations Director for RegTech Film Society, nominee for the Progress in the Arts Award, as well as occupational therapist and occasional baker of luscious cakes. Thank you so much for helping to progress the arts in mid-Missouri. Absolutely. It's a joy to do every day. And that is it for another week. I do have one extra thank you this week. To the person, whoever you are, who nominated me for this year's Progress in the Arts Award. Thank you so much. And thanks to all my guests each week who let me ask them about their passions. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. Or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thanks again and congratulations to my guest today, Brandon Hall, director of the Columbia Jazz Orchestra, musician and educator Violet Vonderhaar, vocal coach Nolly Moore from Columbia College and Carly Love, Operations Director for Ragtech Film Society. Thanks also to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. 
finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.